welcome back to the Content Lab, the only podcast out there dedicated to content marketers and business leaders who want to learn more about how the proverbial content sausage gets made. I'm your host, Liz Moorhead, Impact's Editorial Director, and as always, I'm joined by my favorite human, Dapper Gent About Town, and Impact's Editorial Content Manager, John Becker. How's it going, my man? Hey, Liz. It's going great. I, I, thank you for calling me Dapper, but I feel like I haven't put on, put on a collared shirt or pants in like months. I think like all of us, we're living in sweatpants, slippers. I'm wearing my first romper today. <laughs> I, I don't, I had never owned a romper before and it's really comfortable, except when you have to go to the bathroom and you're like, right. oh, I'm in a giant one piece smock (laughs) but it's really cozy I will say that at least but yeah my my fashion choices have definitely started getting a little bit questionable there's a lot of havesy outfits where it's like penguin pajama pants but like a nice sweater and cardigan on top so I don't like I look like I should be gamefully employed as an adult you know, like things like that, but from the shoulders up. Yeah. Yeah. From the shoulders up. Exactly. Uh, but I will say, no, you keep your dapper, you keep your dapperness going. You can rock a oh, thank you. crew tee. I'm very, I'm very... <laughs> so other than t-shirts and things, how are you doing? Doing well. Summer is fully here. Kids are out of school. Everything's great. How's the doggy? The doggy's good. The doggy is, um, so for those of you who don't know, we adopted a, a rescue dog now about two months ago named Millie from Texas. And she's a hoot. She's, she's this cute little uh, mutt, um, but she's still a puppy. She's like maybe nine months old that we think, we don't know. So she's got a ton of exercise, or sorry, a ton of energy and needs a ton of exercise. So her favorite thing is playing with other dogs. So we've been going to dog parks and just letting her like tear around and chase and play fetch and stuff like that. So she's good. Thank you. So sweet. Yeah, my cat, Pumpkin, still remains murder facey. <laughs> I drove herself off a bookcase today. I had to go over there and tell her there's more to live for. And then she just looked at me like I was a moron because that's what cats do. Uh, but yeah, otherwise, I've actually been really enjoying summer. Like normally I'm a big like warm weather hater. But this year, I don't know. I think I'm just kind of, I've been trying to go into 2020, even though everything's upside down, on fire, awful, and garbage. Like, I've been trying to go with a more, like, grateful outlook, you know, and not taking things for granted. And I've actually had so much fun. Like, I went swimming and, like, done a bunch of stuff. It's been super fun. Anyway. Well, if you could be an an optimist at times like these, then uh, you could be an optimist at any time. I try. But we're not here to talk about my optimism or my new swimsuit that I actually really do like. Uh, we are here. You know what? I'm not going to tee up the topic today. This was your baby. I want to turn it over to you to set the table for today. Absolutely. So for today, I was reflecting on part of my writing process and specifically on my ghost writing process. And as all content managers know, sometimes we have to produce content for other people in our organization. You know, we, uh, we go through a process that ideally you feel comfortable with. You interview someone, come up with, you know, some questions, a topic, interview them and, and write down their ideas, kind of organize their ideas and get it back to them and for their okay and their edits and then get it out the door. Um, but I was thinking that, that uh, I was reflecting on that process and I was going to use that as a way in to talk about um, 
some nuts and bolts of writing specifically around rhetoric. And I know rhetoric can be kind of an intimidating or, or maybe feel like a kind of pretentious word, but it's, it's really not. Um, you know, rhetoric is, is just, the, just the skillful use of language, the intentional use of language to, for an effect. Um, yeah, because I think when so, people hear the word rhetoric, they're like, oh, we're going to talk about speech and speaking and Caesar and like, you know, all of these different things. But it's really just about purposeful word choice. Right. That's exactly it. So when I ghostwrite, I, I, this is really all I do. First, I, I organize what people say because we all know that when we talk, we tend to not be as concise and deliberate in the way that we move through topics. Um, as we should be in writing. I trim because, again, we all know in speech, we tend to go on and on. And I just kind of find myself inserting rhetoric. And that's what made me kind of think about this as a topic for today. Um, and that's the, the, the third kind of wild card of, um, of ghostwriting. So that's where we're going. So I have a couple of questions. Well, I have one statement and then I have a question. The statement I have is that for those of you out there who may be unfamiliar with ghostwriting or haven't really embraced it as part of your process as a content manager, maybe you're just a digital marketer, I really still encourage you to listen to this discussion because so much of what it takes to be an effective content creator, especially when you're working with other experts who hold the knowledge that you need, you need to learn not only how to speak their language, but also communicate and speak with it as well in terms of what you're writing. So you may not go into a situation where you're explicitly ghostwriting, meaning you are writing for someone else and then putting their name on it, but you also need to learn how to communicate and speak as they do. So a lot of the tools of the trade still apply. My question to you is you said, you know, we've talked very broadly about rhetoric, what rhetoric is, and you and I speak this language all the time, but for like, the newbies, the newbie digital marketers and business leaders who don't, you know, swim in rhetoric the way that we do. Can you give a specific example of what it means to, when you take a transcript of an interview and you're trimming and massaging and this and zhuzhing it up, what it means to insert rhetoric? Like, can you give us yes. an example? I will. And I will give you examples uh, by and by. We will get there. I promise you. Um, but to your point, Liz, you're exactly right, because we also do this as editors all the time. You know, if something feels like it, a section ends really abruptly or a transition isn't smooth, we're going to insert some kind of phrasing that's going to make that happen more, more smoothly, more easily. And so often those are rhetorical. And um, the reason people think of, of Caesar and even earlier than him, the ancient Greeks, is because the Greeks developed and defined rhetoric and came up with hundreds of terms of, of rhetorical devices, meaning just like tools that you can use to put words together in effective ways that were effective like three or 4,000 years ago and we're still using them right now. Like every time we speak, and that's why I wanna like, just as you said, move beyond, like it's not just like Caesar or, you know, JFK using, using rhetoric, we're using rhetoric like I'm using rhetoric right now, like everyone is using rhetoric at every second because we are taking words and using those words to try to convey our thoughts or try to convey an argument or try to convey a, um, an idea. Um, we are making those like syntactical and, and dictional choices at all times. And so I wanted to, I wanted to start with um, like a really, like the simplest example I could think of. So if Liz, if you asked me, John, what was it like completing like 
X task. Like when you, what was it like? Like the, the most simple way I could say it, I could be like, it was difficult, right? That, that's like the, the simple sentence. It's a subject, a linking verb, a subject complement. Like it's, it's as simple an answer as I could give you. So Liz says, what was it like completing this task? I say, it was difficult. But we don't always do that. We, like, we don't always say things in the most simple and direct way. Like, we, like I could say, I could say, um, like I could say it, it was brutal. It was brutal. And like, that's still the same, like really simple sentence. It's just three words, but there's a little bit more conveyed in that because brutal is like a more descriptive word than, than difficult. I could, I could be analogous and I could say like, you know, like it was a marathon or it was a, it could be use a figure of speech and say like, it was a bear or something like that. I could say, and this is, this is, this is like Greeks came up with terms for all this stuff. So if you say, how was that task? And I say, it wasn't easy. Like I'm saying the, it wasn't the opposite of what it was. Like I could say it was difficult or I could say it wasn't easy. And those have kind of the same meaning. There's probably some slight variation in how you hear that and, and what I mean. But the Greeks, like that's called litotes. Like they, they came up with a term for it when we, when we do things like that. You know, I might use like, like hyperbole. I might say like, it took forever. Like all of these are ways of me saying it was a difficult task. And they're these small little adjustments we make in speech. And each one has a slightly different meaning, both for me, the speaker, and for you, the listener, and that, like, that's rhetoric in practice. That's rhetoric in the day to day. When you say, "How was it to do this task?" and I say, "It was brutal." Yeah, it, it's it breaking easy. it down to that simplest form of. It's not just what you say; it's how you say it. And I think sometimes people will gloss over the how, and they'll just immediately blurt out uh, what they view as an accurate, quote unquote, answer, without thought or meaning. Like one of my one of my little nitpicks and one of the reasons why I always get stuck on things like rhetoric and being really focused on specificity and word choice and language is have you ever had those moments where you express an idea and you're trying to get there and you can't mentally get there. You can't find the right words. You're like verbally like searching through the cobwebs of your brain. And at some point you just give up and go, you know what I'm trying to say. Right. And the other person says, yeah, totally. You don't know. You're both in that conversation agreeing to something that has never been uttered, articulated, defined, or scoped out. And they have come to the table with their own preconceived notions, experiences, opinions, biases. So you two could be sitting there thinking that you're in total agreement. But since you failed to articulate whatever it is that you wanted to say at all, or, you know, that's not the right word, but you know what I'm trying to say. Kind of like <laughs> that. You know what I mean? Like, I think people don't understand how much power you end up giving up by not slowing down and taking that moment to say, this is exactly precisely what I'm trying to say. You're exactly right. And, and that's, 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 it's so easy to, to make, like we make these choices all the time, as you said, without even thinking about it. We think about it more when we're writing, but still, we do it secondhand or, or offhand, offhand, not secondhand. We do it offhand uh, and you're right. We, we, we miss an opportunity to be precise in our language and therefore we, we change the meaning of what we're saying. And I think, you know, ultimately what I'm hoping today is about is like trying to 
ask ourselves to be really conscious of what we're doing with words and what we're doing with language and especially in our writing. And, and I think, you know, as, as you were saying before, like your ideas are only as good as the words you use to express them. And, and if you can't say something or you, I don't know, you, you kind of take a pass, like you said, like, you know what I mean, right? Um, you miss an opportunity. And, and sometimes the whole ideas can get lost or, or the whole like tenor of an argument can get lost if you miss a big step. So let's circle back there for a moment. Let's let's start diving more deeply into this. So the crux of this conversation really comes into ghostwriting because word specificity is something that is universal, right? Like we've been talking about it a lot in the context of our own words, what I express as myself as Liz, what you express as yourself as John. But, you know, for example, you do a lot of work with Marcus Sheridan, who is an author in his own right. He's an international speaker. He is a partner here at Impact, which means, guess what? He's kind of busy. So you spend a lot of time kicking over rocks in his brain, asking him questions, and then having to express his voice through rhetoric. And as some of you may know or not know, he has a very specific way of expressing himself. I like to joke that we're all going to marketing church. You know what I mean? And I love... (laughs) Here, like, is there a difference for you in terms of the mental processes that you run when you're trying to embrace the specific word choice of another person versus yourself? Yes, absolutely. Um, I wrote I wrote an article about this once. I, I do create a sort of um, like a style sheet for someone, especially someone like Marcus that I write for often, um, you know, just kind of like a punch list of a few things that phrases he uses often. Like Marcus asks a ton of rhetorical questions. He addresses himself frequently in those rhetorical questions. Like you might say, Marcus, what if I, you know, like he does that all the time. So I, I tend to put that, <laughs> you know, honestly, like Liz, part of it is, is the act. Like I, when I write as Marcus, I, I talk to myself in his accent. Like to me, that helps get into his voice um, it, because it feels so natural. I have to, so it's actually funny, pulling back the curtain even further. This is something you and I have related on before because I helped edit the second edition of They Ask You Answer. Uh, I'll link to the book in the show notes. It is a content marketing Bible if you haven't read it. But I always joke like I have the little Marcus-shaped tumor and the way I learned to write like him is I read the first edition and like read articles of his and I would read them out loud, standing up, like pretending to be him. Uh, And the person I was living with at the time walked in on me doing that once and he was just like, so you're a lunatic. (laughs) I'm like, I'm working, it's art. Anyway, but uh, no, what you say, I mean, the way you said it is perfectly right. I, I always think of Marcus as, um, you know, he, he's very rhetorical and he's very, you know, almost like ecclesiastical. He, he, it sounds like he's a preacher. He uses a lot of the same sort of structures that, that a sermon would. And I find myself doing that in, in his writing. So I mentioned before Aristotle, uh, or at least I mentioned the Greeks, and Aristotle, uh, this old philosopher, wrote a book on rhetoric, and, and he, he like focused on that anytime you're, you're talking to someone, there, there's, he, he called it this triangle, that it's just, it's you, and it's your audience, and it's the subject. And if you're trying to, I don't know that we're necessarily trying to be persuasive, but the way he, he phrased it is that you can convince someone 
based on your own character, like your own credibility, and this should sound familiar to content marketers, like your own credibility matters. He called that ethos, which often gets like mistranslated, but like the character of the speaker matters. Um, the emotional state of the audience matters. Like if people are stressed or frustrated or afraid or, you know, happy, like whatever they are, like that matters too. Um, and then there's the argument itself, like whatever you're trying to convince them of, uh, that that's like the third part of the triangle, like what, what you actually write. And, and when you're ghostwriting, you're, there's a little bit of a play there because you are embodying someone else, but it's still, it's how do you convey this information, connect to the emotional state of the speaker, I'm sorry, to the emotional state of the audience and um, establish your own credibility and your own authority all in the process. So even like what he said so long ago, what, what Aristotle said so long ago, we're still doing when we actually, when we write anything, but especially ghostwriting. I always love how you bring the Greeks into content marketing. Can I just say that? I don't think I've ever heard anybody do that. And it just like, it, there's a deep part of me in my soul that just is very soothed by this. But it also does kick this reflex alive within my brain. You know, there's the Liz now who has been a professional writer in content marketing, but also in a journalism capacity for the past six years via freelance. I've been doing this for a really long time. But then I think back to the freaking terrified Liz just maybe, let's see, I guess five or six years ago at this point. When I first really transitioned into my role where I was living and breathing content creation. And you know, what you and I talk about and are waxing poetic about are things that have become so much a part of our DNA. These are things that we do without thinking. But how do you train up these reflexes? Like I, I could imagine listening to this conversation being like, wow, I want to be like them one day. They're just so stinking awesome and smart. And they talk about Aristotle and Caesar and rhetoric and like, but I wouldn't even know where to begin to practice those skill sets, hone in on them. Like, how does one begin that journey? Well, Liz, let me, uh, let, let me watch. So what I wanted to do today and like the, the purpose of what I wanted to share is to, to talk about four tools that you can use that can, you can kind of plug them right into writing. Chances are you're probably doing them without even thinking about it. But once you kind of hear them, you'll be aware of like, yeah, okay, that makes sense. And they're actually incredibly simple. And some of them have slightly fancy names. You can use those names if you want to. But I just want to talk about four of them because they're, I just find myself doing it when I'm writing as Marcus or writing as anyone else in our company. I just like plug these in. And Marcus actually does these naturally really well because he's, he's such a powerful commanding public speaker that rhetoric is so closely tied to, to public speaking, maybe even more so than writing. It comes really naturally to him. To other people, it doesn't. But I want to talk about four tools. Like, like it's like you're opening up a toolbox and you have four tools that you can just like plug into your writing to make it sound better like, like that. So that's, um, that's the point of today. So in answer to your question, Liz, let's open the toolbox and, um, and talk about four things. Toolboxes and tools. Let's do it. All right, what's the first one? 
Hit me with it. Okay, the first one is, is so easy, um, but it's parallelism. And what I mean by parallelism is the use of successive or the, the structure of successive clauses or phrases or sentences to mirror each other. Think about parallel, parallel lines. Um, so when you do that, it produces an emphasis on the repetition and on the, how the repetition changes. So let me give you a couple examples. So the first one that I came up with for today is, is like is classic and you, you would recognize it in a second. Um, when Kennedy says, I mentioned him before, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. It's like one of the most famous lines of 20th century politics. It was in Kennedy's inauguration address in 61. And like what he's doing, if you, if you look at those two, it's one sentence, two clauses, ask not what, you, what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. And what I mean by parallel is that those two clauses, the first one, ask not what your country can do for you, and the second, ask what you can do for your country, are built really similarly. They start the same, they have some of the same words, um, so they kind of run parallel and that makes you more aware of the differences between them. So he could have said, he could have said like, ask not what your country can do for you. Instead of that, I want you to think about what you can do for your country. And it's the exact same idea, but it's way less powerful. So what I find myself doing, uh, you know, with anytime I'm ghostwriting and really anytime I'm writing in general is if you have subsequent sentences that kind of, you know, maybe can be built the same way or structured similarly, um, it could be more complex than Kennedy. Or I had another one, um, you know, the, the famous line from Lincoln where he says, with malice towards none, with charity for all. Like a Lincoln is so beautifully rhetorical, but you know these two kind of lines next to each other that found that sound really similar, and that it just sounds nice to the reader. So sometimes it can be a little bit more complex, and I, I pulled this out um, uh, from something that I wrote recently, and um, so I want to read it. And, and this was something that like I just kind of structured it in such a way that I want that's like similar sounds to come up. Um, over and over again. So I said, um, maybe they think they won't be able to afford a pool for at least five to 10 years. Maybe they think it probably wouldn't work in their yard. At this point, they're just a casual informational searcher. But say they start reading content and realize that a pool is not as expensive as they think. Maybe they realize there are options that would fit their space. Maybe they read more and barriers start to fall away. Ooh. So you, you, you hear just like sounds and structure repeating themselves. So in the beginning, like the first paragraph, I, I know I can see it and you can't, but uh, the first paragraph is all about like, they can't buy a pool. Maybe they think this, maybe they think that. At this point, they're just an informational searcher. And then in the second paragraph, but maybe they realize this, maybe they realize that. And we have like a few sentences in a row that are structured in similar ways so that there creates a sort of rhythm for the reader that feels really natural and um, effective. It kind of reminds me of one of my favorite quotes from Jurassic Park, bear with me, which is, your scientists were so preoccupied with whether they could, they didn't stop to think if they should. Is that Jeff Goldblum? I feel like yeah, that's Jeff Goldblum. Of course Goldblum. it is. Of course it is. <laughs> <laughs> 
can always find a way to, to I like, like the dinosaurs in Jurassic Park, I find a way to bring Jurassic Park into anything. But no, it has that rhythm, that repetition, that similar structure carried within one sentence. It's why it's so memorable. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's just using something and then reversing it or using something and then, you know, tweaking something in the repetition of it. And that draws attention to whatever you're trying to draw attention to. So parallelism is kind of a sort of broad structure. Um, often I find myself correcting faulty parallelism in writers when they say things like, I don't know, you know, I liked running and working out. And I also like to go swim. Like if, if we're, if we're using, um, or like, I, I like running and working out and to swim, like, no, no, it, it's so, it's so easy to say swimming. Like it, it feels more natural. Just build parallel structure and the effect is immediate. It's like the, it's one of these things is not like the other kind of rule. Like you can feel exactly. it when something's broken. It's like, get back in line. Exactly. Yeah. So, so parallelism is kind of broad. The, the other two or two others that I want to talk about are sort of fall under parallelism and they're kind of, um, uh, they're sort of opposites of each other. One is called epistrophe and one is called anaphora. And all it really, all it really means is for epistrophe, it's ending successive, or like re repeating the same word or phrase at the end of successive clauses. Um, and anaphora is repeating a, a word or phrase at the beginning of successive clauses. So two things, epistrophe sounds like I'm saying apostrophe, but sneezing. <laughs> and also you and I know what a successive clause is. So let's get right into that first example, because I could imagine Liz a few years ago, like nodding and nodding, then going, I have no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> okay, absolutely. So I brought in, I, I, I looked up a couple speeches for today because I thought they would be, uh, they would be effective. So um, one, the, so epistrophe, same word or phrase at the end of a bunch of sentences or a bunch of clauses. And this was, this is FDR. So FDR, when he's announcing that, that um, America is going to go into World War II, he says, in 1935, Italy invade, invaded Ethiopia without warning. In 1938, Hitler occupied Austria without warning. In 1939, Hitler invaded Czechoslovakia without warning. Later in 1939, Hitler invaded Poland without warning. And now Japan has attacked Malaya and Thailand and the United States without warning. Like he could, he could say like, let me give you a list of the things that bad people have done without warning. But that repetition without warning, without warning, Someone did this without warning. Someone did this without warning. Someone did this That's without warning. Like, why it's, does that trigger something in somebody's brain instead of somebody going, oh, that's repetitive. They go, wow, that's powerful. I think it does a couple things. Like in this specific example, it's reminding us that there has been aggression without provocation, that people have done this to unsuspecting people, to like people who weren't, they weren't at war with, people who weren't ready for it. Like Hitler invaded here, Italy invaded here, Japan attacked here, all without warning, without warning, without warning. And I think part of it, you know, maybe is the seriousness of the, you know, of, of the charge of what he's talking about. But part of it is just the power of rhetoric. Like when we repeat things for effect, um, 
it just underscores them and, and gives us more, um, you know, gives them more emphasis. I suppose if he went on and made a list of, you know, 75 things without, that said without warning, you'd be like, okay, FDR, we get it. Like these are all without warning. No warning, so part, got it. So, so, part, <laughs> so part of it is absolutely a, sort of an instinctual thing that you have to kind of know when the rhythm goes on too long. But uh, it, it's like a really, really simple way of making your writing sound good. If you have a bunch of things that are similar, structure it in such a way, <coughs> excuse me, structure your writing in such a way that those similarities are repeated to draw emphasis to them, if that's the point of what you're trying to say. Now, I was going to go back to, to, uh, to JFK, too, and um, he has this speech. I like speeches. He has this speech uh, when he says, like, we're going to go to the moon, we're going to land a man on the moon and come back before um, the end of the decade, blah, blah, blah. And he says, like, he, has, he makes this last analogy. He gives a speech at Rice University. And he makes this analogy, like, why? Some, some people would say, why? And then you might ask, like, why would you climb Mount Everest? And supposedly, Sir Edmund Hillary, who climbed Mount Everest, said he climbed it because it's there. And Kennedy goes, well, space is there, and the moon and the planets are there, and new hopes for knowledge and peace are there. And he, he goes through this list of, um, you know, like what's kind of waiting for us in space. And this isn't like, these aren't super powerful words, you know, are there, are there, are there. But the repetition is powerful in and of itself to, to kind of create a rhythm for the, re for the reader to know that, as Kennedy's saying here, like lots awaits us, lots await us, lots awaits us in this next adventure because all these things are there for us. Sorry, I just, I'm now processing all of this because I think these are all the little things that you're describing that we take for granted. You know, I think instinctually, like whether or not you've ever heard of epistrophe, bless you, thank you, before, <laughs> or any of the other things that we're talking about today, we're more just applying words to things that we all naturally gravitate toward, to things that are naturally memorable. Exactly. We do this all the time in speech, yeah. like all the time. I love that. Like, I mean, I, I could be, I'm not even doing this really consciously, but I could be like, we do this in writing. We do this in speech. We do this in debate. We do this when we're talking. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm literally doing parallel structure <laughs> as I'm talking. That just happened. <laughs> That's amazing. Okay. So there's epistrophe and then there was the other word. The other one is anaphora, and we can put all this in the show notes. Um, and it's basically just the same thing reversed. So instead of putting the same sounds and words at the end of a sentence or a clause, we're doing it at the, at the beginning. And I was writing something the other day for, uh, for Marcus, and it was all about like being a teacher in your space and why that's so important. And Marcus in it, he was talking, when I was interviewing him, he was talking about how, uh, you know, people have really positive memories of teachers and how teachers make sure they answer everyone's question and how they're beholden to the people in their room, you know, all the students in their room. And then we kind of reverse it and we talked about how businesses need to do that too. So I wrote, I wrote this, um, businesses too need to see the hands in the air and answer the questions that are being asked. Businesses too need to address concerns in such a way that customers feel heard and validated. Businesses too need to see themselves as beholden to their customers. And so anaphora is just 
businesses too need to this, businesses too need to this, businesses too need to this. Um, and what I'm putting forth, like kind of a complicated list of ideas, it gives structure and rhythm in such a way that it makes it real. They're almost like bullet points. They're not really all that necessary, but they give a rhythm that feels really um, attractive and natural to a reader. Like businesses too need to do this, businesses too need to do that. Um, and the more famous example that I, I brought in for today was Churchill from World War II. All these like mid 20th century politicians. Oh. You know, when he, he gives this like really famous speech where he says, we shall defend our island, whatever the cost may be. We shall fight on the beaches. We shall fight on the landing grounds. We shall fight in the fields and in the streets. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Like it, it's the same thing. It's we shall do this, we shall do this, we shall do this, we shall do this. Uh, and the effect is, you know, galvanizing to his people as they plan to defend life or death, their, their island, their country. One of my favorite things about Churchill that he always did exceptionally well, that I thought it's something that influences me in terms of how I do my writing, is his ability to always remind people that England is not this monolith. It is a small island nation and they will defend it. And he did that in various different speeches and different points throughout his career. And I always loved that because he did a great job of shifting perspective and making sure people always contextualize the big idea of, of who Britain is, like who they are as a people. They are a small island nation, but gosh, are they mighty. You know, like, and I think that sometimes something that people can forget historically or even just geographically, that it is a little tiny island nation. And it's something that I like to remember in my writing as well of what is the 80,000 foot view big picture message I want people to walk away with, whether it's a swimming pool or England or whatever it is. Um, so, okay. So we talked about a few things so far. What else is in the toolbox? Absolutely. Um, so the only other one I was going to say for anaphora was, um, which is the beginning of each clause, is, yeah. is the okay. classic from, from Lincoln when he says, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. You know, like beautiful line from, from Gettysburg Address, we cannot do this, we cannot do this, we cannot do this. I always um, think funny how short that speech is. Like It's, it's so, so short. It's, it's like two paragraphs. It's ridiculous, and yet it's one of the most profound pieces of rhetoric that's ever been uttered, and it's like that short, like it's nothing. I was watching this, um, this really, you know Key and Peele, the- um, Oh yeah, I love Key. Yeah, yeah. So he, there's this great one um, of the guy who speaks at the Lincoln Memorial right after MLK gives his I Have a Dream speech. And so it's, um, it's key. And he like, he goes up there and he's like, you know, um, Peel finishes like free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we're free. And obviously MLK is a master of rhetoric. Oh, and God, then the I next guy gets up, the next guy gets up there and he's like, uh, he said a lot of what I was going to say. Uh, that was so good. You know, he's like, how do you follow that? Um, but it's uh, absolutely, it's, it's, it's funny. That's amazing. Anyway, uh, so the last, there are tons of these, but the last one that I wanted to talk about today is polysyndeton. And I know that sounds, again, a little you bit like a sneeze. these words today, and I am living for it. So say that one more time. Polysyndeton? Polysyndeton. Yeah. Sounds like a Stepford, Stepford wife name. 
Mrs. Polly. <laughs> I am Mrs. Sinditon. Yes. <laughs> Please come in. Um, and again, this is like super simple and we do it in speech all the time, but it, um, it's rhetorical and it has like this really, really powerful effect. So what it means is when we make, when we talk about a list of something, the normal way that we do that is we have like a list of things and then we have either and or, or before the last one, right? Like I've been to Canada, Mexico, Costa Rica, and Brazil. Say, or, or we might say like, I want to go to Canada, Mexico, Costa Rica, or Brazil. I don't know, that's not a great example, but you get the idea. But what polysyndeton is, and think of poly meaning a lot, you know, like mm -hmm. polygon or something like that, is that you take that conjunction, a conjunction is a word like and or or, um, and you actually put that in between everything on your list. Oh, you know I love to do that. You've read my yeah. right. I will go. Right. We do it all the time. We do it all the time. So like, and there's like a subtle difference. There's like a different effect on people. Like if I say I've been to Canada, Mexico, Costa Rica, and Brazil, or if I say I've been to Canada and Mexico and Costa Rica and Brazil. Oh like yeah. There's, there's a difference there. Yeah. I'm looking at an email I actually wrote yesterday. So I write our newsletter, the latest. And for some reason, I'm just allowed to write whatever I want, whatever's <laughs> in my brain. And yesterday I was very sad because there's a musical composer who had passed away. And the original sentence I had about a specific song that I shared was, it's somehow hopeful, inspiring, tragic, and heartbreaking all at the same time. But if you were to flip that out and do what we were just saying, out, it would be out of context. It sounds somehow hopeful and inspiring and tragic and heartbreaking. And I really love using that kind of structure. I didn't for that particular sentence, but when I do pull that in, it, I usually do it because I almost, I don't want someone to rush through the list. I want each word to land equitably. I want each one to have its own space to stretch and like own a bit of your breath when you're reading it. And I think that's what makes that so powerful, not just to do the list, but it's, you know, it's like, but it can also be used conversely in a different emotional way. It can be used to inspire and give space and room, but it can also be used to agitate. You know, like I have to go to the cleaners and then the supermarket, and then I have to do the laundry and then I have to pick up the cat. And then like, you know, it can also allow you to stretch out things and promote an agitated moment as opposed to something that may be a little bit more positive or uplifting. Love you it. are a hundred percent right. And, and that gets back to the heart of all of this is that, there is intention within a writer to, to elicit a certain response in the, in the audience. And sometimes you get it right. And honestly, sometimes you don't. Sometimes you might be trying to um, have one effect and the effect might, be, might not land in the way you think it will in the audience. That, that's why, as, as our Aristotle says, there's like a triangle. There's the speaker, what you're speaking about, and the audience. And but. Uh, as you you know rightly say for any of these, and I'm hoping that this is what our audience hears too. It's like, oh yeah, yeah, I do that, or I can like think of when I've read that, or I've I've heard people do that, and we do it in speech, like you said all the time. I have to go to the cleaners, and then I have to like go to the DMV, and then I have to go to the grocery store, and then I like I'm making a list doing the exact things that we're talking about. Um, and I find myself, and, and this is kind of zooming out, but I find myself when I 
when I write, just kind of naturally falling into these cadences that provide structure and rhythm to the words that we that we use, that I use, that I want people to read. And and for any of the for you know JFK or Lincoln or FDR or Churchill or um, uh, F, uh, MLK, I mean that that's kind of all they do. I have a dream that I have a dream that. And then, you know, he goes, let freedom ring from the Red Hills of Georgia. Let freedom ring from here. Let freedom, like all that is, is, it, I mean, it, it's so, it is so evangelical. It's like a call and a refrain. It's, it's like letting things um, wash over an audience over and over again. And there are little, these little tools that you can just kind of plug in especially I find myself doing it at the end of sections or at the very beginning where I feel like rhetorical devices are, have the most weight, but it just gives you something to, um, with which to build your message. The way I always think about it is, and this goes back to, I mean, you've heard me go off on meandering tangents many a time about how I get so frustrated about thoughtless word use. And the reason why is because I know I think because, you know, especially in the marketing world, video has taken off to such a degree that um, people sometimes forget to slow down and understand that words have power and meaning. Like there's this one quote from my, my number one Boo Hemingway. It's like, all you have to do is write one true sentence, write the truest sentence you know. And it sounds deceptively simple. But when you come across a true sentence, you know exactly how it feels. It stops, it arrests, you feel something. And I think the reason why I get stuck on this and why I love this conversation so much, especially with the rhetorical tools that you've been mentioning today, is that people, it's kind of like people who only listen to react not, and respond, not listen to actually hear. With mm -hmm. words, it's the same thing. I think people sputter and throw out words out of their mouth and through their fingertips with the intent of, I just want to communicate the facts or just like, you know, get them to understand what it is that I'm trying to say. Instead of understanding that proper words and using these types of devices, you're not just going to be communicating the substance of what you're saying. You can actually make people feel something. You can evoke action and feeling and response. And you can be in control of that, which is kind of wild. Um, that's my little, my little soapbox. Moment. No, you're, I, words are the most powerful tools you know, like, that, that we have. They can be, they can spur action and, and change people's minds and, and um, you know, make people fall in love or out of love. Like there, there's, all we have are words. Sometimes they don't fit perfectly with our, our thoughts. Sometimes they don't convey exactly what we want, considering all we have is words and, and they're, they're imperfect for communication so often. When we do use them and we do use, do use them well, the effects can be tremendous. Completely agree. I often tell people when I'm coaching them about writing, yeah, there are some mechanical things that we can teach you and stuff like that, but I think where people get tripped up the most, and this is probably a conversation for another day, um, is this notion of they view writing as different. Like they view, like I need to become a good writer. The minute you start thinking of writing as a completely different di discipline and a pursuit that is divorced from your natural voice and how you communicate conversationally or any other way is the minute you lose the battle. It also makes it so much harder 
Like if you always divorce it and put it away on like writing island and word island, like it's just stuff you already do naturally every single day. Anyway, but like I said, that's a different conversation for another day. So let's bring this, let's bring this home. Yeah. What are some of your closing thoughts about this topic? Because you brought so much to the table today. I'm, I'm just personally swirling in all of it. I love all the new words, polysyndeton. Oh, there's so many. Like I remember, yeah, um, for, for all of these, like we, we think, I remember learning about like hyperbole in high school English class and, and um, like, okay, yeah, that kind of makes sense. But then my point here, I think, is that we do it all the time. Like I'm actually using hyperbole right now. Like we do it all the time. That's a hyperbolic statement because we don't actually do it all the time. We're, we do it a lot and I'm exaggerating to create an effect. But for any of these things that feel uh, could feel like stuffy or or pretentious or something, they're just words to describe what we already do when we're being effective with words. Um, so I would love for us to not think about these as something that's like in a dusty you know book on a shelf that's written in another language, but they're just ways of describing how words can be effective and describing how you can use words effectively in huh. speech in writing, in editing, in ghostwriting, um, in conversation. Anytime we talk, uh, anytime we try to communicate, we're, we're using words and the better we can use them, the more clear we can be in our message. So Liz, that's enough from me. Uh, talk to me about Learning Corner. Teach me. It's so funny. I feel like this happens every time I'm doing Learning Corner, where somehow what I decide to choose ends up aligning perfectly with what we were discussing today. And this couldn't have been pre-planned because my Learning Corner is based on another meeting that you and I had earlier today. So I've already gone in depth about, you know, I love, I, I harp on specificity of word choice, being very meaningful and purposeful in not just what you say, but exactly and precisely how you say it. We spent the past, what, like 30 minutes talking about that. But today I had a very illuminating experience working with you in a completely different capacity. So right now I'm working on an original research piece that I'm crafting for impact, which I can't share exactly what it is yet. It's a surprise. I don't want to. Toilet. But here's what I can say. So our working session today was focused around building a set of questions for a survey that I want to send out as well as a focus group that I want to conduct on a specific topic. And you have a lot of experience in this field, which I knew at a high level, obviously, like we work on the same team together. We work, you know, you work for me. That was one of the reasons like I really wanted you on my team. But you were the one who was more in control. We had more of a role reversal, which I said to you earlier, where you were guiding me through your process of what it means to really develop great questions. And I'm really excited with the exact questions that we came up with, and you and I still have a little bit more work to do, but that the substance of what the questions are or what the topic is, has, it's not why I'm bringing this up. Our conversation we had today really brought to the forefront of my mind that the same logic I have about, you know, what we talked about today, being specific, being purposeful in your word choice is the same kind of logic we should actually be applying to how we ask and answer questions. 
So questions are essentially at the core of any great piece of content. Either the topic itself is a question from our ideal buyers, whether it's like, how much does something cost? What are the most common problems with blah? And how do we solve for them? What is the best way to do blank? You know, we, we have all these questions that we're trying to answer. And in our content management roles, you know, you and I, we spend a lot of time getting answers to those top level questions by asking questions <laughs> of other experts in order to get the answers. So my big learn for you all in this meandering little exposition here is this. You need to not just be mindful of how you're crafting your answers, the words of what you're saying and how you're saying it. You have to, have, you have to practice the same level of mindfulness and purposefulness. We're just going to go with that. <laughs> you know what I'm trying to say, right, John? <laughs> but you have to be that, you have to be that mindful about the questions themselves. For example, if you are saying, oh, I want to answer what are the most common problems with blank in your content? Is that a real question that is being asked of you? Like, I actually hear this all the time from people on our video team and people who are on our uh, digital sales and marketing coaching team. We'll go to a sales team and say like, what are the most common questions you're getting? Cause that's where we pool all of our content ideas. And the first question out of our mouth or their mouths is, oh, okay, that's a great question. Is that a real one? Because often what we'll do mm -hmm. is we will put an original question through a filter or we'll say in our head, we'll go through this little mental exercise that is almost subconscious. It's like a reflex of like, well, when they're asking this, what they're really asking is that, or sometimes, we just wish it's the question that we would get asked. It's one we want to answer. It's not one that's actually being asked. And then when you are phrasing questions, like say you're like John or myself and you're going out into the wilderness and you have questions to ask subject matter experts or whomever, you need to make sure that you are crafting your questions in the right way. And the big light bulb moment I had today was, so our goal today and the title of the meeting was, let's build some questions. But the first thing we did was we didn't start with questions. Your first question to me is, okay, so what are your goals? And I, I was like, I don't know how or why I didn't realize that was going to be the first step, but I just found that really illuminating. So when you're crafting questions for other people, the way you, be the way you start with mindfulness there is don't just start by saying, okay, what's the question I want to ask? Ask yourself, what is the goal that you're trying to get to? And then you build your question. And then you have to challenge yourself to not be leading or, to, or, and you need to be specific and you need to be mindful again of how you even ask the question. That's my rambling little learning corner. Be mindful about questions the way you are about words, answers, and ideas. The end. John, what are you reading? I think we have a, a bit of a developing trend here. So what I'm actually reading right now is, is this book, Radical Candor, which I, I think most of Impact is reading, or at least about half of us, by Kim Scott. Uh, it's fantastic. It's all about just effective office communications and how to work well on teams and lots of different things about, about leadership and, and collegiality and stuff like that. So it's a fantastic book. But the part that I was reading recently that has, has bearing on what we're talking about today, she shares this story of um, these two people, these two historical people where one who's an expert in economics is giving advice to a president. And um, for whatever reason, 
the advice just doesn't sink in. This is, uh, you know, 50 years ago or so. The advice doesn't sink in. And the question she sort of poses is, well, whose fault is that? And she talks about how she, when she was younger, she would have thought, well, it was the president's fault. Like he wasn't listening well, or he wasn't taking notes, or maybe his mind was elsewhere, or maybe he's, you know, he doesn't have an economical mind and it wasn't something that uh, just sat well with him. But she talked about it increasingly as she's grown older and developed in her career, she sees the fault being with the expert. And it goes back to what I said before, that our ideas are only as good as the words we use to express them. And if this expert had the answers that the president needed, and the president left the, left the meeting without those answers, then those answers weren't communicated well. And any time that we're talking with someone or we're writing to someone, we continually have to be putting ourselves in their shoes to make sure that what we're con conveying is as clear and, and complete and precise as possible. Because the fault, according to Kim Scott, is, is ours. If we're the ones speaking, it is, it is our responsibility to make sure that our message is, is effectively conveyed and, and is heard. Um, and we often put, she would say, too much responsibility on the listener, that in fact, we have to kind of reorient the way we think of that kind of question and put it on the communicator. So I thought that was a great anecdote and um, a wonderful little uh, tidbit to end on considering what we talked about today. It is rather a perfect little bow on today's conversation, isn't it? We're so good at that. Look at us. Look at us go. We're pros. We're pros. Well, Thank you, Liz, for listening to my rant about uh, rhetoric and et cetera. Are you kidding me? Do you know how many great words I got to learn today? And you, you know what I will say also as a parting thought? If you ever want a great name for something, give it over to a bunch of word nerds. I mean, epistrophe, polysyndeton, hyperbole. Like, there's just something, like, fun and just kind of visual and awesome whenever word nerds are allowed to name things. Love it. Don't let the scientists do it. Let us name stuff. Yeah. It'll be much better. Well, anyway. thanks for listening, everybody. Yeah. Until next week. Until next week. Yeah. I'm waving like you can see me, everybody, but you can't. Goodbye.